Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Goodwin Podcast and I am Nico Lapalusa. As always, I appreciate you so much for being here, listening in, gives me life. I hope I can return the favor. That's the intention. Share myself in an authentic and vulnerable way um, to increase the self-esteem of the listener and to, you know, make it a little easier for you to maybe be authentic if that's what you're craving. Seems to be a good way to build self-esteem is accepting your true authentic self and then being able to express it. That's what's been helping me a lot most recently. And uh, yeah, thank you for being here. And if you if you like the show, what, what do I got to ask for something? I don't have to ask. I, I rarely ask for something at the top of the show. But uh, if you if you want to, go ahead and leave a review, especially if you're listening on Apple or, or Spotify. These reviews help um, more than I gave them credit for at the beginning. And uh, it mean a lot. So feel free to leave a review. And thank you to all the people who have been leaving reviews I've been noticing. And uh, shit, it's good stuff. Mucho gracias, muchas, muchas gracias. Para ti. Y para tu energía, for your energy. And I'm feeling kind of good today. It's New Year's Day when I'm recording this, so I'm, I'm going to be gathering with some people, and I'm really looking forward to that. I haven't gathered with people in some time, and I just got done with um, a jiu-jitsu class, and uh, I like it. I like it a lot. I went there a little begrudgingly. I kind of go sometimes a little bit tired. I I don't think it's really tired. It's more like um unenthusiastic, unmotivated. And what that makes me want to do is not participate really. Even when I'm there, I don't want to give it my best effort. I kind of want the other person to just kind of take it easy on me. Um, but that doesn't, that actually does me no good. It's a good way to get injured actually is expecting people to drop energy levels. Um, an, an aware person will meet you where you're at, but you know, you're fighting someone who's kind of new or maybe they feel like they have something to prove, whatever it is, you know, you, you have to rise up to meet them or you're, you're going to get maybe hurt. So I rose up to meet a few people. A few people came down to my level um, of energy wise, where it was more technical, more give and take and less dominate. And I felt, felt so good. I had a point, like a, a really nice philosophical moment. And I can't seem to recall it in this moment about jujitsu. But today I really wanted to talk about, um, it's been taught to me as being labeled the pain body. And this is 
That's by Eckhart Tolle and his book, The New Earth. Um, but a lot of what I've been talking and sharing on, uh, on TikTok and, and beyond in this podcast has been about relationships. It's about building your self-worth and it's about um, knowing what you want so that you can know what you don't want and therefore set boundaries around that which doesn't serve you. And learning how to set boundaries, learning how to speak your boundaries, uh, and learning how to say what you want. But there's a tricky part here. There's something tricky. It's called the pain body. And there's this phenomenon, if you will, where people tend to be attracted to people who have similar pain, similar trauma as them. And this is not good or bad in my perspective, right? Because people that have gone through similar things might be able to empathize with you better. And especially if they have come out the other side, they can help you up in that way. You know, that's kind of my intention with with my sh- most of my shares is I've, got, I've gotten through a few things. Is there a way I can help, you know? If I was a wise man, I'd climb to the top of a mountain peak and think about strength versus weak. I find a spot that rests a couple feet above your head and reach down and try to help you reach it. That's atmosphere. If I was Santa Claus. Um, so yeah, so the things I wish I knew before 30 is all about that. It's about sharing, you know, it's pretty self-explanatory, but there's something called the pain body and and being attracted to people who have similar pains and people that haven't necessarily made it out the other end, but kind of commiserating in that space. And it feels less lonely, but what can happen is you kind of never get out of that negative place. It can kind of get you stuck in this commisery relationship, codependent misery relationship. And it's almost like we become so attached to our pain, our stories. Our ego has a lot to do with our story and who we think we are in terms of possession, in terms of things that disintegrate, things that go away. And I mean, it's the, it's thick. Those layers are thick. And I'm, and look, the caveat here is what I'm not saying is destroy your ego. What I'm not saying is you have to obliterate your, like Alan Watts says it kind of best. And he makes a really great point of this. The destruction of the ego is the favorite game of the ego because it's egocentric. It kind of reminds me of like a few things. Brian Tracy talks about our subconscious not understanding negatives. So whatever the object of focus is will be strengthened just by energy alone. Meaning, if I say I don't want an ego, I don't want to drink alcohol. Your opposite, and you keep saying this, you keep saying this to yourself. The object is alcohol. You're actually giving energy to alcohol. 
So what Brian Tracy would say is something like, I, instead of saying, I don't want to drink alcohol, say, I wish I'm going to, I am sober. I am going to be sober. It's like learning how to reframe things so that the object of attention becomes what you want and not what you don't want. So I'm not, so nothing that I'm going to say is about destroying the ego. It's more like becoming aware of it and through that awareness, becoming friends with it. And the pain body is, is a part of the ego and, the, and your story, your story, my story. Let's talk about my story. Like there's a lot of times that I could point um, during the cancer process, for example, for you, for those of you who don't know, tuning in for the first time, um, this year I had Hodgkin's lymphoma and, uh, which is a type of cancer of the blood and lymphatic system. And there were a lot of days where it's just like, I could tell that story. Maybe I don't want to do the cancer thing today. You know, there's plenty of episodes on that, on that stuff. (laughs) I want to do something else, but, um, What's one? Um, I'm impatient or I'm angry or like any character label. And like historically, there's evidence to back that up. This historical evidence can only do so much for you moving forward. The The history is not, it doesn't have to be the the sign moving forward, change is possible. Change is inevitable. Some would say that like the Vipassana retreat, Anicca change is really the only thing that's going on, that we got going on. So our history is only so, so important. And the pain body has a lot to do with our history. This isn't going to be very popular, but there's also, there's this character habit. Maybe it's not of character, but there's this habit to, of women in particular, to make themselves the victim because, because it creates a certain amount of tension, attention. It creates a certain amount of people comforting them and giving them time and energy. Now look, there are real victims. And what what you'll hear me say over the next whatever minutes is going to be it's important to acknowledge the victim. It's important to acknowledge the story. We're not destroying the ego. It's important to acknowledge the story, but to move forward eventually you will have to release that as well. It's not throwing everything out. It's not you're never the victim. You've never been the victim. It's acknowledging it but so that you can eventually move out of it. What I'm seeing a lot, I've been to a therapist. I've had good therapists. 
I've had therapists I didn't jive with. And I see these therapists on YouTube. I, I do some research and I'm, I'm constantly interested in psychology and the mind, social behaviors, social interactions. This is what I talk about. And what I'm seeing a lot of, I'm seeing popular accounts of therapists. And they're constantly diagnosing. It's like, do you have dissociation, dissociative tendencies? If you sometimes can't focus in a conversation, yes, you might have dissociative like behaviors. If you've had an out-of-body experience, yes, you might have dissociative tendencies. And that's just one, one video. Then it goes into what is trauma? Yeah, if you go to the grocery store and there wasn't toilet paper on the sh- if toilet paper on the shelves, yes, that can be tra- that's trauma. And it's like, okay, look, it's I'm not. It's important in a way to acknowledge what trauma is and to acknowledge that yeah, you may have had a traumatic experience. But I see a whole page dedicated to diagnosing. Diagnosing, diagnosing. Yes, you might have this. You might have this. You might do this. And none to little posts about solutions. Identifying the problem is only so much of the of the equation to eventually reaching a sense of self or a sense of solution. I can only identify with my diagnosis so much until I have to let it go to move forward or I will be stuck. And in in my mind, I see these therapists doing that and it's like, you kind of want them, you kind of want people stuck. Then they have to keep going to you and keep seeking you for advice. Like that's the bad doctor, right? The good doctor is creating a relationship with his patient so that he doesn't, he or she doesn't have to see them. I think there was like some sort of Eastern medicinal practice. It doesn't have to be Eastern, but it's like a doctor only got paid when the person got well. And now the kind of backwards of the medical system is we go to the doctor with a problem and then they make us, they give us something that keeps us in their cycle, keeps us coming back. Diabetes is a very good example of this, bad example of this, is someone that has diabetes goes to the doctor and goes to the bad doctor, we'll say. And there's no acknowledgement of dietary changes or little acknowledgement. It's, it's like, hey, you can't eat this much sugar anymore. Which I guess is, that's still something. But the point is, is they'll put, they might put you on insulin right away. Now, once you start taking in insulin, synthetically, your body starts stops producing what the insulin that it can. Now, diabetes is the lack of production of insulin, but once you start taking the synthetic, you really start to shut down your body's ability to create it itself. 
So now you are hooked in a way. We're always now you're always going to be dependent on the external insulin support. Now what the good mock doctor might do is is there a way that you can start can up your own body's ability to produce insulin through dietary fasting, sleep? Is there something you can do? So you don't have to come back to me, you don't have to have a prescription the rest of your life. Can we exhaust those efforts safely without putting you in harm's way? Do we have three months? Do we have six months to try our best to make lifestyle changes that support you for the rest of your life? Can we put the power back in your hands? That is the distilled version of what I'm going to be saying in so many ways in regards to this. How do we put the power in your hands? And I don't think it's constantly diagnosing. I don't think it's saying, yes, you have depression. Well, you have depression. You you have a chemical imbalance in your brain. People hear that and then they're like, oh, okay, that's me. Well, by taking in that story, your body has a tremendous, tremendous ability to repair itself. And a shift. There's studies that show a change in DNA through habit. A change in DNA. A change in the fundamental nature of the of you, of your body. And you're telling me that the serotonin, like you, you know, I'm a little angsty about this. You know, I have people in my family who have been prescribed antidepressants for decades. And I just wonder, I wonder if they were given the self-esteem and the empowerment to try to increase their serotonin through exercise, through yoga, mindfulness, meditation, you know, with a little bit of help too, talk therapy, a community, There's this native, I don't know, I saw this meme and it's like people used to go to the doc, the local doctor, shaman, whatever, tribes, medicine person, when they were feeling blue or down or depressed and they would have ask them like a series of three or four questions and the first question is, when did you stop singing? When did you stop dancing? You know, when did you stop laughing? seeing the comedy, you know, seeing comedy and joy in your life. And I don't think it's woo-woo to put the, the power into dance, to put the power into movement, into music, into singing and expressing yourself. And I can personally attest to having been diagnosed with depression, things like bipolar spectrum, and being prescribed medication that ultimately took more than it gave me, overcoming that through habit. And I'm not special in this way. I may have had, I have a good support system, and I'm not even trying to take away the years I had being prescribed and be identifying with this these words, I actually never, I never fully identified. Even when I was like 
diagnosed. I'm like, mm, something's not sitting right. I never fully accepted it. And I don't know if that's what I'm encouraging right now. I just know that it's powerful to acknowledge when you've been wronged, when you are the victim. You know what? Because if you never acknowledge you've been wronged or if you never acknowledge you have a problem, there was a great relief when I was told that I actually had cancer, which is crazy, right? I was told, that, yeah, dude, you do have it. And I, I was relieved. A part of me was relieved because I'm like, okay. Something about naming it, something about labeling it, um, because there was a solution in place once I named it. That was an important part of that process. But what I'm seeing is an overemphasis on naming things. An overemphasis on claiming the vic victimhood and never breaking free of that, with no intention of breaking free of that. Because you might receive a particular amount of attention. Because, you know, like I said before, and which wasn't like perfect, but there is a, a female archetype of damsel in distress. And I'm not saying it's right, and it's it's kind of antiquated anyway. But I'll hear just, I guess it's men and women. I don't know why I tend to hear women default to complaining. It's like when they're uncomfortable, they default to complaining. And I think it's, they've been trained that once they complain, someone will try to make them feel better. Someone will try to soothe them. And, th and like that form of attention, they get convoluted as like love. When, when what they don't know is that gratitude, approaching a moment with gratitude, any given moment, opens you up to a new love, a self-love, self-soothing, where you feel so good, you no longer need the external soothing, and now you're building other people up around you, and that cycle is now filling you up. And that is a love that feels so much better than trying to be soothed by the outside in. It's kind of hollow trying to be soothed from the outside in. Inside out. Inside out living. And some pain bodies might be tougher, you know. And some people's situations might require different journeys, you know. It's not much. Look. What, what tends to happen when you try to tell take away people's pain before they're ready is all the resistance in the world. That's why it's important to give people the time they need to, you know, no rush on healing. Not trying to fix anybody. They, it has to be an, that has to be inside out as well. That has to be a choice to want to and fix isn't the right word, but get well, feel well has to come from within. Loving yourself, soothing yourself first. You have to want to do it. You have to be fed up. Sometimes you have to be fed up with the pain so much that, and sometimes you have to hit that rock bottom place. So I, I would never try to take that away from someone, but I'm offering another perspective. There is another perspective. We hear all that there's plenty of evidence to support this of people hitting rock bottom and then finding themselves and then all of a sudden they spiral up and their life is completely different with a simple perspective shift. 
and I have, you know, my pain, I think I, I had a abandonment thing going on for a while. And what this abandonment, so that's a story, right? This is a story I used to tell myself, like, I'm afraid of being abandoned. And so because of that, I will hold on extra tight and ironically push people away because of that. Ironically scare people away. Ironically, like, incentivize them to abandon me and feed my own pain. It was kind of this weird way of my pain body maintaining itself. My pain of fear of being abandoned would perpetuate itself by holding on tight, therefore pushing people away. Kind of a weird, sick game to play. And eventually, I had to realize that I was okay alone. That the story of the orphan... Okay, I was given this tarot deck. All tarot decks are supposed to be gifts, supposedly. I was given this tarot deck. It was a past lives deck. There must have been 50, 80, whatever it was. Lots of cards. And there was a year I'd play with the deck. And every time, I drew the orphan card. Every time. It became a joke. Because there was people that witnessed it. I'd play with other people. And I kept kept drawing it, no matter how many times I shuffled it, no matter who shuffled it, I would draw this card. So this kind of like reinforced this orphan mentality. And look, I don't know. I could have been an orphan in a past life. Last night I sang uh, The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow Tomorrow by Annie. I love that, that lick. And I sang it to a group yesterday. I identify with orphan plays. Oliver Twist etc. Another brick in the wall by Pink Floyd. That feels orphany. Anyways, I had like all this evidence and I, I, w- I would genuinely be afraid to lose, you know, people. But I had to realize that this was pushing them away and perpetuating the story. I had to eventually drop the story. Now, that I, the pendulum swung back and I and I kind of turned into the abandoner. I became indifferent at people who loved me and started abandoning. It's interesting how like orphan and abandoner go together. It's like the trauma of a, someone who's abused as a child is more likely to be a child abuser. You become what you hate. You become what you fear. And this goes back to the point of like, what are you focusing on? Are you focusing on what you don't want? Is there a way to reorientate yourself to focus on what you truly do want? So the pendulum swung back and I became indifferent at the people who love me. And in a way I was abandoning them. Making. And like I was in that pain body relationship. I still might be, you know, I still am in some ways, but I'm willing to work through it. And I'm willing to become aware of myself doing this thing and perpetuating the cycle so that we can break free of it. Because I know if I just did the abandoning thing and moved on, I'd probably just be pulling it to the next relationship. I might be attracted, you know, the pain body is very attractive. It really is. Um, You feel like you know people when you have similar traumas as them. Your guards let way down, you connect, all the oxytocin of connection is released, and you like, 
you di- it can dive into this infatuation. And if this infatuation, it's like the pain body, being in a relationship based on pain bodies is very volatile. You'll have like two good days for every five bad days or like two good days for every two good, two bad days. And look, who said this? Someone said this recently. I really agree with it. They're like, look, 50-50 is not good enough in your relationships. Two good days for two bad days is not good enough. Like you can do, you deserve better. Start to cultivate that deserving better because it should be like a, two weeks of, of good. Not great necessarily, though that'll happen. Like two, two weeks of really good for a day or two of bad. Maybe less. Maybe you can do it less. And I think these pain body relationships have a, have the tendency to to be have a worse ratio of bad to good days. So what do we do? I think we acknowledge our our pain body, you know, our tendencies, our fears, and we do acknowledge them. Right? We're not trying to avoid them. I don't think I think that only make them grow. Resistance is persistence in a lot of ways. But we acknowledge them, yes. But then we have to move forward. We acknowledge them so we can drop, so we can let it go. And that letting go part seems to be the where people get tripped up. In therapy too. And I think it's on the responsibility of therapists to eventually lead their patients, their clients towards freedom, towards self-freedom. If you've been to the same therapist for five plus years, I'm talking to you. Do you need a therapist for five years? Maybe. But maybe not. But maybe not. If you've been in therapy for 20, you know, I think there's a lot of people who would argue with me and I, <laughs> and I am questioning whether or not they're holding on to their, their, they're comfortable holding on to the pain that they have. That's how I would question in my mind. I can hear people argue, debating with me. I think you should go to a therapist the rest of your life. It's like, okay, look, I'm definitely not going to stop anyone. And I probably won't even have that debate with someone who seems sure of that. But if we do the math, you know, that's thousands of dollars a year. Maybe money's not the thing. But developing an authentic community that you don't have to pay, where you can actually vent to them, where they'll correct you, you know, they're not afraid to stand up to you and and uh, and they won't just perpetuate a story that's been living for many years. Look, I... I have an aunt who, I'm going to get personal, and they don't get along with my parents. They're brother and, they're brother and sister with my, with my parents, but they've maintained a relationship with me. And it's been a decade of us meeting up together now, one-on-one. And it's been tears, resentment, 
almost every time, and the story is the same. I'm the victim. Your mom was mean. Your parents were mean to me. They're bad people. You know, you don't know how they treated me. And I see, like, the text messages that this aunt sends to my parents, so full of blame, so full of, like, stuff that happened decades ago. And it's only one pers- her perspective of being completely victimized. The clinging on to her, vi- like, the victimhood in this relationship, and yet using it, also being the bully instigating and throwing really hurtful messages out there and as a man now 31 years old i'm now participating for 10 years i just let it go i'm like it'll work out i'm praying and now i'm calling her out i'm saying the messages you're sending are inflammatory you're using blame too much you need to like you need to take responsibility for yourself rise above basically saying all the stuff i share on TikTok, but now I'm utilizing it in personal, personal relationships. And I, and I'm like, look, you're my elder. I would like you to act like my elder. Cause she comes back to me like, who are you? You know, you don't have any right to tell me. I'm like, well, now that I've seen it for 10 years, I'm a grown man. I'm seeing that you haven't changed and I'm seeing things clearly. It's time for me actually to speak my mind. And you silencing me because you feel like I'm younger than you. Your actions are proving otherwise. Your actions are showing a level of immaturity that I'm not engaging in, in this relationship. And I'm, I'm talking to my parents too, this in a similar fashion. They're not showing me, like, I'm not seeing evidence of them being as inflammatory. So I am saying, you know, when I do take, I see a little spite arising in them saying, Hey, that's spiteful. You may need to do that. But I think if you want to maintain a level of peace within yourself, I wouldn't cross that line either. And, you know, why there is a part of me that was like, why would I get involved? Why would I moderate? They're the adults, but no longer, no longer. I see things in a particular way. Clearly, I see people holding on to things from many, many resentment for so ancient resentment in human years. And by doing so, they're not even allowing themselves the opportunity to move forward of something new to grow, of a beautiful relationship to cultivate. Because all, you know, we're going to go. How long are you going to hold on to this? 40 more years? 20? I'd like to see the elders be elders. I'd like to have genuine respect for you and not just the respect that is obliged based on your age, which I'll still give you. I still respect elders for the fact that they're elders by age. Um, But if I'm seeing juvenile behavior over and over, that's harmful I'm willing to say it. I'm willing to speak my piece now. So I don't think, I think you can use a therapist medicinally, but you don't have to make it dietary. Does that make sense? When you're going through a tough time, maybe a tough year, maybe a tough two years, you know, you lose someone that could take a few years 
something traumatic happens to you that can take a few years. No rush again. I'm not rushing your healing process. So can you can that therapist be medicine for that trauma? And then can you leave the medicine behind when you no longer need it? Or are you just getting so comfortable being with this therapist that now it's just a daily vitamin like a daily dietary thing? I'm questioning whether or not it has to be a vitamin or if it can be medicine. They're practicing medicine. They're not practicing nutrition. I think if you ask any therapist, like therapist, they're a doctor of psychology. I wonder, yeah, I wonder how they would feel if they think of it as medicinal or dietary. Meditation. I used to think when I was taught meditation, it's like, oh, this is every day now. Every day I have to show up and sit for two hours. And there are even some places that say that. But for me personally, it's medicinal. There are some days I definitely need some meditation and it's a nice little thing, nice little tool, nice little medicine for me. But forcing myself to show up every day, like holding on to that medicine every single day, it doesn't seem to serve. The pain body's strong. It's not so easy all the time. But it's worth it to move to eventually let it go. Kind of like one of the last things I want to talk about is guilt as well. Guilt is being used in your life, my life. Guilt is a very, very powerful, powerful persuasion and manipulation tactic. Again, someone describes it, can't recall who. Maybe Eckhart Tolle guilt throwers and guilt catchers there are people who who and i'm not saying they consciously do this the tricky part here is some people use this subconsciously because they just know it's effective but some people throw guilt you know your mom i think you know your mom or grandma maybe (laughs) maybe your dad it doesn't matter someone in your family might throw guilt you know i brought you into this world i've done so much for you how are you going to treat me like this? These are th- these are like forms of guilt. But you said you were going to do this. You know, like, and there is something about being impeccable with your word, but things change as well, you know. And persuading someone with guilt builds resentment anyway. That's the that's the catch twenty two. When someone does something because they feel guilty, you're not going to get the best version of them, and you're not going to. The experience will be muddled. It's best you know, to, for people to choose, you know, I mean, I, I put together parties and I I invite people to parties and it's tempting to use guilt when people RSVP and then they let you down. But you said, you know, I already did. I already booked the caterer for this, this, and this, you have to come. Like, I don't really, I don't play with that anymore. I don't want a person there who doesn't want to be there. They, they have the opportunity to shift the energy of the whole room in a negative way. I want people who want to be there. It's so much better. But it's tempting to use the guilt because it can be effective. And I'm not saying don't hold people accountable either. Of course, there's balances with this stuff. I'm constantly checking myself at this language. But 
holding people accountable is it, you could say facts, right? Hey, I already did pay for this. So if you're not going to come, that's okay. Um, but I'm only going to reimburse you half of your ticket or whatever, whatever it is, or I'm not going to re there's no refunds on this. You've committed and you missed the deadline for receiving your refund or whatever. Yeah. So holding people accountable is you can stick to facts, but as soon as you get emotional, like you always let me down or you, you know, you were never really there for me. Like that stuff is, is manipulative and guilt throwers and there's guilt catchers. Now what guilt catchers need to know, if you're often persuaded by guilt, first becoming aware of when people are using guilt on you. That's step one. And then realizing people will use guilt on you as much as you let them. People will use guilt on you as much as you're willing to tolerate it. And this isn't just guilt. People will treat you as poorly as you're willing to tolerate and this is why self-esteem is so important. Knowing what you're worth, knowing what you're willing to put up with, and knowing where your boundaries are. You know, real recently, I've had people say they're going to do certain things, connect me. I've had a person say he was going to connect me with someone. And uh, he's like, yeah, I'm going to do it now. Well, two days later, they didn't. Hey, you didn't connect me. And then he starts playing a little game. He's like, I'll connect you um, if you do this. Well, that wasn't part of the original agreement. You said you were going to connect us. And now you're putting contingencies on it. I'm not interested in doing that. And I appreciate it if you don't play with me like that. And then he responds, I'm very sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Uh, I know intentions of ill will. Are we good? Yeah, we're good. But I, I wasn't willing to tolerate the toying anymore. I don't need to be connected with this person. I'll let it go. And I'm not going to let be dragged through the mud so you can have some sort of power over me in this situation. I'm not willing to tolerate that anymore. So people will use guilt on you as much as you're willing to tolerate it. So no longer... So notice when people are using guilt. And here's just a really simple thing to do when people are using guilt on you. Um, I've done so much for you. Come on, you you can't you can't do this to me. I, I've given you like I've given you so much. I was there for you last last time. You notice that's that's guilt inducing language. So all you do is say, "Are you trying?" Uh, to make me feel guilty. And more often than not, the person will say, no, no, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. Because it's not all, it's not conscious. People use guilt because it's effective. They don't do it because they want to make you feel guilty. They don't want, they don't do it because they want to hurt your feelings. They do it because they think they know what's best for you or for their situation. And they're trying to persuade you. And trying to control you in a way. And you having good self-esteem and knowing your worth and not willing to be controlled. All you have to do is become aware that they're using guilt and say, hey, are you using guilt on me? 
and even if they're like, yeah, I am using guilt in you, then you can be like, well, I'm not, that's not going to work. And that's not an effective way to get me on your side. I'm not willing to do what you're asking if you're going to be using guilt on me. And when they start to see that you're not willing to tolerate it, then they won't throw it at you so much. This is such an important point. Someone will hurt you. Someone will use you. Someone will use guilt on you as much as you're willing to tolerate. Ah, so that feels good today. I know this is coming out a little bit later, but happy new year's to everyone. And, uh, thank you again for being here. Remember to subscribe and and please leave a review, drop a comment. All is very much appreciated. If you do want, feel free to reach out to me too. You know, I'm pretty good at responding to messages not immediately, um, but I do get to them eventually. So as long as you drop the expectation of how long I should respond to you, um, you know, think of the song, listen to the song Stand by Eminem. He event- Eminem eventually writes Stand Back, but it's too late. Stan already drove off the bridge. So please don't drive off the bridge. I'm not Eminem. Eminem is way cooler, and way more, <laughs> I don't know, accomplished than I am. So I don't think you will. I think Eminem's fan base had a, he really connected to the pain bodies by exposing all of his pain. People with pain were drawn to him and he never, Eminem never really gave a way out. He would rap about his pain and then just kind of fester in it and then get into drugs and like talk about rape and murder and killing his dad and stuff but not really about building self-esteem and and love maybe a little bit later in recovery, but you know, not in Marshall Mathers LP, not even in the Eminem show. Yeah. I guess there was Haley's song. He had his daughter. There's a little love in there, but there's also Superman. Superman ain't saving shit. Girl, you can jump on Shady's dick straight from the hit cut to a taste on I'll tell a motherfucking to her face. Say new games. Anyway, love Eminem. Reach out if you want. Um, I'd be happy to respond. And I, I certainly will at some point. If I see the message, I'll respond. And uh, love you guys. This, this has been the good wind. <laughs>